So a friend with me shared recently that um, a, a thing from General Kelly, who was a Marine Corps uh, four-star general and now is in the administration, but he was speaking at a Navy cross ceremony for two Marines that died in 2008. They were both corporals, and they were both at a guard post in Iraq. And what happened, I think sometime at 8.30 roughly in the morning, and I might not get the story perfectly, but this big blue truck started barreling in. So there were about 50 um, Marines and other soldiers and air, sailors and airmen in this compound, along with 100 Iraqi soldiers that were being trained to fight alongside of our soldiers. And so uh, General Kelly puts it like this. This is probably how it happened. The uh, sergeant went up to the two corporals and was like, you and you are going to go guard that post and not let anyone in. And like, you know, got it, got it, okay. And they go and do it, right? So they're sitting there, probably expecting nothing to happen. This blue truck barrels in, weaves through the barricades, and there are six seconds that is recorded of these Marines' lives. Six seconds. As this truck's barreling in, everyone knows what this means. It is not a good sign. If you know a checkpoint, you know that you don't want to go through it. A friend of mine took a wrong turn at NSA. He was invited to NSA. He had credentials for NSA. He had a top secret clearance to NSA, but he went through the wrong entrance. And he went to the gate, and they didn't have any joy in seeing him there. They're like, who are you? Well, I'm so-and-so, and I have an invitation to be here. They're like, this is not the right place, right? And so it ended up where he ended up getting pulled aside, whole car turned over, questioning where he had been and what he had done and all that stuff. So he was not supposed to be there and they knew it. This blue truck was coming down. It was barreling down, weaving through the gates. In a matter of seconds, just seconds, this vehicle's coming. And in the corner, you see, uh, you see the Marines starting to fire at the vehicle. You see the Iraqi soldiers start running they, they hear it coming, they run the other way. These two guys unloaded on this vehicle and in six seconds, the vehicle detonated and killed them almost, in, one of them instantly and one of them very shortly after. They did not worry about what is plan B. They weren't looking for escape routes when the blue truck came they were trained that I am in this till the end. I'm going to be a good Marine, and I'm going to do what my sergeant told me to do. And I'm an American from a small town, whatever, and it's a beauty thing from it. They stood there, they returned fire, they killed the people, and the vehicle blew up right in front of them. So why do I say it? In this next text that we're going to go into, Jesus talks about some of the headings in the Bible is God hates divorce— is one of the headings in some of them. And I'm sort of rework that as um, that Jesus actually promotes marriage. Jesus promotes marriage. Marriage, in this, in this scene, in this leading up to it, it's about discipleship. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit, very briefly, about marriage as discipleship. We've talked about discipleship here at church. We talk about that it's hard. It's not always easy. There's challenges in it. When you press into Jesus, the, you know, you don't start uh, seeing rainbows fly out of everywhere. You know, it is difficult at times and there is suffering in it. And I want to say the same thing is in marriage. Another thing for those of you who are here who are divorced, some of 
the church's greatest damage has been done by making divorced people feel like second-class citizens. So I want to say something. God hates divorce. He does. But he doesn't hate divorced people. God hates divorce. But he does not hate divorced people. My dad grew up in a conservative uh, well, he didn't grow up in a conservative, excuse me. My dad got saved when he was like 29, but he ended up going to a relatively balanced church, and then he went to a very conservative church, and I remember this. And my dad was divorced, and immediately in that church, it was almost like he was declassified, or um, just, uh, what do you call when you take soup and you, or he was just dropped down to just barely nothing. And it was like, oh, you're, it's like almost a stigma of divorce. Oh, you're divorced. You know, and then I'm there with him, and sometimes you get, where's your mom? You know, and there's all these questions. So the church has had a bad balance on understanding and teaching what it means to be saved by grace, forgiven for our, our trespasses, and living in grace. So Jesus, God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. I'm not going to be able to unpack this. This would be a couple of hour conversation to really unpack this, but I hope to open it up a little bit. In the mid-20th century, the Harvard sociologist Petrium Sorokin wrote a book in which he sounded an alarm about the impending disintegration of American culture and civilization. The central concern of Sorokin's book was the radical proliferation of divorce and the breakup of the American home between 1910 and 1948. A Harvard guy is writing about this, about our culture in 1910 to 1948. Now, I'll just stop there for a second and think. I hear time and time again how amazing the 50s were. How, you know, just, it's almost like there was no sin in the 1950s and prior. I mean, if that's you being guilty of that, I'm, I'm stepping on your toes. I hear this, but as I see studies and as I hear stories about people who were molested in the 20s and 30s and 40s and who underwent shame and no one ever talked about that stuff, the news brief didn't highlight it everywhere, but sin was still prevalent in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000s, and to our present generation. Is that the truth? Amen? Can we agree with that? So he pointed out that in 1910, 10% of U.S. marriages ended in divorce, but that number rose to 25% in 1948. He spoke uh, as a historian of the culture and said that no civilization can long survive when one-fourth of its marriage units are disintegrating. We now stand at apparently just over 50% of a divorce rate in our culture. And um, so you look at this, so, you know, it's like if you're studying where we were going and it's like we're talking about divorce, people can tend to walk in. I don't really want to talk about that. But Jesus is speaking to something that was very prevalent to his time and is very prevalent to ours. So in Mark chapter 10, if you can turn there, it's also in our app. Uh, we're going to be starting with verse 1 and we're going to read a couple verses and then move on. It says... That he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. 
And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? Now, if you've ever been in an argument, I tell my kids, you can't answer a question with a question. If I ask you a question, don't ask me another question back. It sort of irritates me. I don't know if any of y'all fall there. Don't ask me a question against a question. But Jesus knew the heart of these Pharisees that they were trying to trap him. They were looking to get him into a pinch point. Jesus already knew it was coming. He was on his road. He was tracking to Jerusalem to be crucified. But in this case, the Pharisees are looking to uh, bind him in. So on one hand, if you remember Herod, his name is Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded, John the Baptist spoke against divorce. He divorced his wife, and uh, to marry another woman. And so he, he taught against it. And so the Pharisees were looking to stir things up. If he promoted that the divorce was completely wrong, then Herod's going to get word of it, and he's heading into that region, and it's going to be bad news. On the other hand, if he contradicts the Scripture, and he goes, you know, um, too loose with it, and just sort of just gives everything away, then he's also going to, the conservatives are really going to have a fit with him. So he knew exactly what they were doing, and so he asked them a question with a question. What did Moses command you? They responded, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. I want you to remember that. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He allowed the man to just sort of take almost, if you were, a paper and sign it away. No necessarily good reason, just because maybe she didn't please him in a certain way. Something, maybe he found that she had a mole on the, you know, freckle somewhere or a, a dimple he didn't like or whatever. I mean, he would write a certificate of divorce and it was done. I just looked at a deed uh, of land that was from the 18, late 1800s, and it was all handwritten. It was just hand, I give this to you and this to you. So just imagine being able to go, you know what, I think I'm done with this. You sort of annoy me, you didn't wash the dishes this week, you know, and the, you didn't empty the dishwasher, my clothes are dirty. You know, this is not what I bargained for. Go on your merry way, right? So that was the Pharisee's response. They, Moses allowed a man, or excuse me, uh, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because of your hardness of heart, speaking for mankind, he wrote this commandment. So we're going to talk a little briefly just about God's perfect will versus God's permissive will. God's perfect will versus God's permissive will. You can remember, I, I think, in the Old Testament that the Israelites started to grumble, and they're like, we want a king. They had a king. God was king. He was ruling for heaven. We want a king. They're like, no, we want someone we can see. We want it our way. You know, we want sort of a Burger King commercial. I want it my way. I want to do it this way and everything. And so because of that, God permitted them to have a king. And you might remember this was King Saul. And King Saul turned out not to be a good king. And if you go through a lot of the lineage of the kings, you will see corruption and abusive power just sort of everywhere. So God had a perfect will 
But God also allows a permissive will where he allows us to go down a path that is not the best one. Oftentimes I'll pray and I'll realize that some of the things I'm praying for is because I've made decisions that weren't God's perfect will and I'm paying the price for them. You know, and those are the ones you feel stupid about. God, get me out of this trap I set for myself. I know no one here has done that. You all just got it figured out. You know, you're 100% Jesus and got it walking down the road, but I am not that person. You know, and then you start analyzing. It's like, man, I created this. So it's easy to pray about a situation where you had nothing to do with it. God, deal with this. I'm good with it. But when you cause it, it's trouble. And so then you just want to begin to shift into God's perfect will. The Pharisees reflect in their statements the view that marriage was a disposable contractual arrangement. Could be torn up at any time. Um, when I learned how to fly a plane, the first class I had was not, this is how you crash a plane. Right? When I taught my kids how to drive, I didn't go, this is how you crash a car. If any of y'all did that, you're wrong. Just let you know. You know, you teach in the right way. I believe here you have the Pharisees who love control and look at the history who wanted to control things. They want every excuse in the book to get out of a contract. They want all the exemptions there so they can walk away and feel 100% holy before God. But that is not how God intended it to be. God did not intend marriage to be you go into it ready for ways out, looking for ways out. When difficulty comes, you're like, you know, this isn't right. I, I mean, if, I mean, you could pull my wife. How many times she was going, well, this guy didn't turn out like I thought he would. You know, and I'm sure you can share some of the same stories about your husbands, ladies, right? Amen? A good lady, uh, y'all are smart. You, you all are smart people. You know, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that we don't want to come into things learning how to fail, learning how what happens all the times if you do, don't do it. We, but we do have to be prepared for the difficulties. So Jesus just responded, it is because of your hardness of heart. He reminds him in verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. One of the things I, I want you to get is that you can't interpret Jesus' opinion from one, a couple of verses. You have to take the whole of Scripture and form a systematic approach to understanding what Jesus is saying. He did this here. He was like, I can tell you what Moses said, but here is what God did. In creation, he made man and woman, and he made it that they would leave each other leave their father and mother, and hold fast to his wife. Recently, I read a book, and I know I've been sharing that, and I don't know if I shared this part or not, but when I often think of that the sin, the first problem in the garden was the sin of Eve and Adam and Eve eating of the fruit. You know what I'm talking about? You know, they go there and everything dissipates. But the first difficulty in the garden was loneliness. God looked down at a perfect creation. 
and said, it's not good for man to be alone. That struck my heart. Even in perfect creation, loneliness was something that God said wasn't good. I could preach a whole sermon on that right now. But just think of a couple things. God didn't mean for us to be alone in our walk. God didn't mean for us to be alone in our struggles. God didn't mean for us to be alone in our relationships. He did not call us to be lone rangers in any avenue of our life. It is not good for you and I to be alone. It is not for you, good for you and I to pull away from deep, intimate relationships. It is not good. It is not good. So marriage was a place where man and woman should leave their father and mother and become husband and wife. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to men and women tell me that the kids are the most important part of their life. Best thing I've got on this earth are my kids. This is what, this is quoting. My kids are my everything. And I've seen grandparents change that to my grandkids are my everything. And I understand the heart of that. I'm not beating that statement down. I hear it. But here you have text where God says it is good for man and woman to leave their father and mother and to separate from them and to create their whole family. And we know what happens when man and or when the kids leave many homes. If there's not a relationship there, what happens? They fall apart because the relationship is founded on the children as opposed to the relationship as a father and mother. So if you're out there and you're struggling just to hold on, I'm not, I'm not feeling, I'm not trying to belittle that. There's struggles and all that, I get it. But God has ordained that your relationship with your spouse should be, apart from Jesus Christ, the most important relationship you have. And when it's not and the kids become a focus, they become idols that disintegrate the, the internal strife in the home. So he is called, they're called to leave father and mother and hold fast to the wife. Verse eight, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You've heard that in weddings, right? What God, you know, has put together, has joined together, let no man separate. A marriage is the start, is the promise of love. It is not the fulfillment of love. Marriage is the promise that we are going to covenant to one another and we are going to be one together and we're covenanting to one another that I am yours, you are mine, till death do us part. If you want to look at it another way, Jesus Although he, uh, or God, in, you know, as uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, was not separated. He, he, they are together. So what God joins together, he joined man and woman together not to be separated. So if you picture a conjoined twin and what it takes to separate them surgically. You've seen the pictures before, people are together and, and then they separate them. The husband and wife is to be that kind of relationship that are bound together as one and so tight that nothing can come between 
what happens. Verse 10. So prior to this, he's out in the crowds talking. He's discussing it with the people who really are on his side. So picture he gets with the A-team now. He separates. He gets in the house. He's with the disciples. And he's in the house in verse 10. And the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now this is where it gets convoluted. Because some people say that if you have divorce and you do this and you go and you get remarried, then you're, you're committing adultery on your spouse and all this stuff. And it gets incredibly confusing. But I've read tons of commentaries about this and I was sort of digging into it. And I found some solace in the fact that Jesus was bringing up the rights of women in this last two verses. He was raising up their place alongside of the man here. He starts off and said, whoever divorces his wife. Remember before from the Old Testament, it was when a man should write a decree from his husband. So he was preaching, one, that the woman is as valuable as the man and that she can write a writ of divorce, if you would, against the man. They were the least bit concerned about that, and I'm sure it blew their mind. And so he said, if, in essence, he was talking about cheap divorce. Cheap divorce. Cheap marriage, cheap divorce. I didn't get married going into it thinking, well, we're just going to try this thing out for 30 days. I hope there's a lemon law here, you know, I hope I can just get out of this. You know, you know it's like my wife and I have had a saying since the Stephen Curtis Ch- Chapman concert in the 90s, dear Lord, um, where he said, there, my wife and I never considered divorce, but we would trade each other in for a Diet Coke. <laughs> and so I think my wife one night came up to me and we were in an argument and she handed me 50 cents to buy a Diet Coke because she was ready to trade me in. You know, and so, you know, it's just, there was these feelings there. I, again, I know this isn't you all. This is just letting you in on us. You know, there's these times. And, and I'll just tell you one more funny story. Um, we were living in St. Michael's, and, and we had a fight or something. And I went to the Hong Kong kitchen, I think, and they had a happy family meal. Just use this one, folks. I bought the happy family meal. I walked in with my brown bag, and it wasn't like a 40-ounce. I walked in with a brown bag. No one all got that? No, I'm sorry. Uh, that's probably a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, I brought the brown bag up, and, I, and she looked at me, and I'm like, here's our happy family. And it was great. You know, it just like dissipated the argument, and it was good. That's a one-time only, by the way. I, I don't have an account with the Hong Kong kitchen, you know, because that wouldn't work a second time. So... Let's move on to 12, and it says, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This idea of cheap marriage has proliferated our culture. It's much like the stuff we buy now. I mean, it used to be, like, I, I came up with this idea in the, when I was in my 20s that if I buy something, it's going to last forever. If I take care of it, 
if I do this stuff. And I began to get disenchanted with the idea that everything began to fall apart. And it's funny because I had this old tool. I think it was an original like Bosch tool that probably costs a whole lot of money. It was made in Germany that is still running to this day because it was made well. Things, materials were put into it to make it strong and make it last and make it do well. But we buy the cheap stuff. We do the fast food. We do the things that are quick and easy and not the work it takes to make things healthy and right. Marriages are meant to be something that we go into soberly, not lightly that we recognize are going to be difficult. There's going to be times of struggle, but there is not a plan B written down. There is not options written down. There are not these things. And so if you're, you know, there is a lot of different things in scripture. There's one that says that, and Paul spoke that if you have an unbelieving spouse, um, you know, you stay with them, but if they sort of had enough or whatever that you leave and you, um, it's okay with the Lord on that. But if, you know, if they have you and there's a relationship there, and here's what I really want to point to, and we were talking about this week with, with, in our family. Um, we're not saying, I'm not saying, and I don't think Jesus is saying that if you're a spouse and it's constant abuse and it's constant neglect and there's no repentance that you just stay there and gut it out. But if there obviously is repentance and there is change, that's a good thing and you should stay. And so it's up to the individual to hear from the Spirit of God what they're called to do. But you're not to go into it lightly or cheaply. You're not to just treat it as a Diet Coke and just throw it away or a fast food meal. It's meant to last. It's meant to have depth. This next thing up here. Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship of marriage, will we stain the divine union of two become one flesh or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God? Will we honor him? Jesus is looking at them and he said, what did Moses say? Then he pointed to what God said and then he brought it together And he was telling his disciples that this is not meant to be light. This is a picture of your relationship with God. Marriage is the best picture of our relationship with the God. We're called the bride of Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, a non-Christian this morning, it might sound weird. It might sound like a difficult thing. I'm the bride of Christ. What does that mean? It is a picture of the bride waiting to meet their bridegroom. We talk about going to heaven someday and there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb and there's just going to be a celebration as everything becomes right. Marriage is a picture of coming together in a struggle where God, as the bridegroom, never says, I don't love you anymore to his bride. God does not divorce you or me because of a bad day, because of a bad week, maybe because of a bad year, but he eagerly seeks us to repent. 
Marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. God created there to be a beautiful relationship in the garden. He wants us to have a relationship with him. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is his love for you. Just a couple things. If you're divorced here this morning and this has upended some pain, it's not my intention. I come from a divorced home. I understand some of that. But God does want to heal that. God does want to reconcile that pain for you. God wants you to know that you are forgiven. Jesus would tell you this morning that you are forgiven, you are loved. Because your marriage might have failed, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not fail you. That's his love for you. If you're in a struggle right now in a marriage, it's not abnormal. But I believe that Jesus would say to you now, my desire for your marriage is that it be glorious, imperfectly glorious, dysfunctionally glorious, painfully glorious, joyously glorious, good and bad. I take the good with the bad. And if you know the old uh, Jewish ceremony, they take a glass of wine. It's not grape juice. Sorry for you uh, serious people out there. They take a glass of wine that is unfiltered and it's got, it's, it's got everything in it. It's got the, um, the dregs of it in it. And it's got the good wine in it. And the husband and wife, as they're just sort of consummating, not that part, uh, consummating their marriage, saying covenanting together with their marriage, they are called to drink it all, the good with the bad. Folks, if you're married right now, you're called to drink the good with the bad and lean on Jesus heavy during the difficult times because he will get you through. Jesus clearly spoke that God hates divorce because it tarnishes his picture of his relationship with his people. But he does not hate divorced people. He loves them. If you sought forgiveness from him, he has forgiven you. He loves you with an everlasting love. You are not an imperfect person. You're not a second-class person. You are not a less than. You are 100% a daughter and son in Christ if you put your trust in him. So I'm just going to end with, have you truly had a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with this morning? If the pain of your past seems insurmountable, I just want to tell you that Jesus can heal the pain. He can take away and he can take, make beauty out of ashes in your marriage, in your relationships, He can do that. But ultimately, his main priority is your relationship with him. He wants it to be pure, and he wants it to be right. He doesn't want it to be adulterated. Is your relationship tarnished this morning? Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years, and you've been struggling. He would call you this morning to come and eat from the table and remember his goodness and walk with him. So would you stand this morning as the worship team comes up? <clears throat> if you view marriage as discipleship as opposed to just a contractual obligation, 
you'll be doing the same thing that you're going to be doing with communion. If you view communion as a contractual obligation, that relationship will be tarnished. If you, communion, if you view communion as a once again reminder, a renewing of your vows to follow after Jesus Christ, the relationship will grow sweeter day after day, year after year, until maybe someday you and I are on our deathbed and we've seen love filled out, lived out in our lives, and we go before God and he looks at us and says, well done, well done, you trusted me, well done, you took me for my word, enter in, I love you. This morning, uh, we're going to take communion, eat of the bread, take of the cup together at the end as we celebrate what he did on the cross.